Welcome to the Question Period. I'm Glenn McGregor. Joyce Napier is away today. Happy New Year as we kick off 2023. We're looking ahead to some of the stories to watch for in this new year with an all scrum show. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Good morning. Before we look forward to the year ahead, we want to reflect on the year that was. From the so-called Freedom Convoy to the ongoing war in Ukraine, there's been no shortage of events here at home and abroad that have captivated Canadians. Here's a look back at some of the biggest moments. This is all mandates, restaurant closures, the shot, anything to do with that. The federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act. Russia has attacked Ukraine. This is a brutal act of war. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. To reaffirm Canada's unwavering support for Ukraine, for its people, for democracy. This afternoon, I stepped down as leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition and leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. That's why I'm running for Prime Minister, to put you back in charge of your life. I am not a hyphenated Conservative. I am a Conservative, period. The next Prime Minister of Canada, the Honourable Pierre Poilievre. We need higher interest rates to take out the excess and excess demand, bring demand back into supply uh, to get inflation down. I'm basically not buying things uh, that I used to buy if the price is too high. I think it's the little guy that's really getting hurt in all this. I'd like to see anything that would save, uh, save us a few bucks. We were here yesterday for 10 hours. Uh, we still don't know where our baggage is. We have a very tight travel window and hearing that I might have to do 45 days plus means I'm not going. It's heartbreaking. to the Pope's visit to Canada, where he can offer those sincere words of apology directly to our survivors and their families. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. our Queen for almost half of Canada's existence and she had an obvious deep and abiding love and affection for Canadians 
She served us all with strength and wisdom. I've been doing it for 65 years. I, I don't know what to say, I'm in shock. saw there, the economy was one of the defining stories of 2022 and will likely stay in the headlines in the new year amid predictions of a possible recession. Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin has suggested the economy will likely stall this year. Inflation also remains well above the central bank's 2% target. And last year, the bank increased its key interest rate seven times to slow down runaway inflation now sits at 4.25%. That's the highest level in 15 years. So is a recession looming? And what problems could that create politically for the federal government? The Scrum is here to answer that. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail. Stephanie Levitz is a parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest is Parliamentary Budget Officer Eve Giroux. Welcome, everybody, and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, Mr. Mr. Giroux, I want to start with you. Uh, high interest rates, uh, high inflation. It's more expensive for Canadians to go to the grocery store, to fill up their cars. But they're also paying, in some cases, hundreds of dollars more per month uh, on their mortgages, mm -hmm. people have, who have floating rates. Uh, is this all heading towards a recession this year? And if so, will it, how deep will it be? How long will it last? Well, it's possible that 2023 will be a recession year, but I don't think it's unavoidable. It's not like written in stone. Uh, in good part because we have a relatively strong employment market, so the job market is still very strong. And in our scenario, we don't anticipate a recession. There'll be a marked slowdown, uh, but a recession, maybe not, unless the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve over-tighten, so go above what is strictly necessary which, to, which could to happen. tame we don't, inflation. We don't, we don't have a crystal ball on that. It, we don't it's know. quite possible for reasons of credibility. Central banks around the world may want to reinstate their credibility by over-tightening to ensure that inflation is nipped in the bud and that inflation remain anchored, inflation expectations remain anchored uh, within the target range of one to three percent in Canada. But by all means, I don't think a recession is a foregone conclusion or unavoidable. Uh, Steph, uh, the federal government still has a lot of big spending ahead of them, uh, cl uh, climate change infrastructure, the health care transfers to the provinces, that's something that's still being negotiated, uh, but that is, that's going to be, again, a big ticket item. And then there's pharmacare, which they, they promised as part of their uh, deal with the NDP. Um, is this all doable still, or does, the, does the, the situation with the interest rates and inflation just kind of throw a monkey wrench into all that? Well, I mean, you have to imagine perhaps the federal government sitting down and now beginning to put things in buckets. What are the things we must do? What are the things we could do or should do? And what are the things that can wait? And in the can wait file, that's the hardest file, right? Because right. there's a lot of competing political pressures on that. There's definitely a political pressure that says you cannot wait any longer to deal with climate change. That money must be out the door now. That adaptation must be there. Mm. We know that infrastructure spending, for example, in a recessionary environment, infrastructure spending is one of those things that is used as a tool of economic growth. So maybe you want to start pushing that out. 
On healthcare, I mean, that's an interesting one because I think all Canadians, no matter their income level, are looking at the healthcare system and thinking, this is not working. Right. But the question becomes, is throwing money out the door the answer to the problem? Right. And can the federal government and the, its provincial partners thread the needle there, right? And say, okay, right. we will put some more money at it, but we need to fix things first. And, and right. that's probably the trickiest one to manage. Yeah. Uh, Bob, the federal government has uh, a lot of runway here as long as their deal with the NDP holds up. How important is it that they get these economic problems behind them before we start talking about another election? Well, first of all, this is a government that has shown no inclination of any to, be, uh, to have physical discipline. They just shovel money out the door. Whoever wants the money, no problem, we'll give it to you. Uh, and so I don't, I'm not uh, optimistic that, that they are going to stop the stimulating the economy, which the Bank of Canada and other economists say, you know, you really got to pull back on this spending. Right. So I don't think they're going to do that, and that's got, probably going to make inflation worse. Um, and we, uh, whether we go into recession, I suppose it just depends on how the United States, U.S. economy goes. Right. But in terms of the NDP deal, as long as they can keep this deal in place, um, I think they're going to keep it in place. And if they have to pay off the NDP, they will. Right. As you can see in that by-election in, in Toronto, right. um, the NDP numbers were way down way and down. the Liberals benefited they're, from they're, them. They're so the Liberals are the ones that are benefiting from this deal, not the, not the yeah. NDP. Yeah, Mr. Drew, well, let's talk about that government spending because uh, in, the, in the last uh, uh, fiscal update, they proposed more billions of dollars in more spending above and beyond just pandemic relief. Mm -hmm. We also know the cost of servicing, the debt are going up because the interest rates uh, are going up. To what extent is government uh, spending its fiscal policy contributing to inflation? Because Pierre Polyev likes to say this is, this is just inflation. He's the cause of it because of all the spending. How much of, of, of that increase do you apportion to the federal government? Well, to, to use a, a movie analogy, I, I think inflation is probably in good part a global phenomenon, but um, domestic factors such as government spending are playing a key supporting role in, in, in supporting inflation. So it's not the determining factor, but it is certainly contributing to inflation, especially if we compare the level of government spending prior to the pandemic compared to, to what we are seeing right now. So it's, it's clearly supporting inflation. It's not the main factor behind it, but it's, it's a driving force. Yeah. Uh, Steph, housing remains a, a, a huge problem, uh, both affordable housing and housing just for uh, regular folks who are f f finding young people completely shut out of the market now, essentially rising interest rates don't help. Is anything the federal government doing going to make any kind of tangible difference to that problem? It's interesting, you know, just before the holidays, there was a decision taken um, by the financial institution that sets mortgage rates, and they decided to leave the stress test as it was, which means mm -hmm. that um, they're applying, you know, how, what does it take to get you a mortgage? And they left that approach at the exact same approach, I guess, right. for when interest rates were at rock bottom. And so you think, what? I mean, you think that interest rates are rising, houses are becoming less affordable. Why would you allow, keep trying to drive people into the market? Mm. And that was an interesting question or an interesting move by the federal government. And we asked, you know, the housing minister, well, what do you make of that? And his only answer is we need to build more houses. And that's a bit of a spurious answer, right, right Glenn? Right. I mean, for one, the federal government's not quite in the housing construction business. Not yet, no. Not yet. <laughs> and, you know, is that what it takes, yeah, right? Is yeah. it literally takes some public servants, you know, to, to start digging and build houses? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, Bob, you, you were obviously around covering the Chrétien Martin government and at a time when deficits were very politically toxic and, and, and voters really seemed to respond to it back then. Now we've got 
a massive national debt that this government mm -hmm. has added to in large part because of uh, all the pandemic uh, relief measures though do voters care about deficits anymore? They probably don't, but you have to look at the reasons why people were accepting of the Martin Kretchen massive cuts. Because we had inflation starting in the 70s, and, and we were going through some very, very, very serious uh, recessions, and still we were not licking inflation. And so at the, when they came in, they, and we were hitting a financial wall, frankly, right. in the world. Uh, we were worried we were going to become like Argentina uh, with right. the currency And crisis, so, right? yeah. uh, you know, all credit to Mr. Kretchen and, and Paul Martin, because they really bit the bullet and they cut and cut deeply. Uh, and, and, and as a result of that, until the, the Trudeau government came in, uh, we, we didn't have a big, uh, we never had deficits to really. We, well, so Stephen we, Harper we, ran deficits. He, he ran yeah. a deficit, but, but uh, he got rid of that during yeah. the, tw the 29 sure. financial crisis. Right. But we, we didn't have deficits. We pretty much came surplus, so. Right. Excellent. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank you, Yves Giroux, for coming in. My pleasure. When we come back, funding fight. The federal government and the provinces remain at odds over health care funding. Who's to blame for the impasse? Can an agreement be made in the new year? Former Health Minister Jane Philpott joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. New year, old fight as hospitals across the country remain under immense strain. The federal government and the provinces remain at odds over health care spending. At issue, the provinces continue to call for Ottawa to increase transfers and raise their contribution to total health care costs from 22% to 35%. The federal government has indicated a willingness to provide more funding, but with conditions and transparency on how the money will be spent. Provinces are pushing back against that, and premiers are demanding a meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau in the new year to hammer out an agreement. So, can a solution be found to address the health care crisis? and who should shoulder the blame for the stalemate. Bob and Steph are back, and we're now joined by former Liberal Health Minister, Dr. Jane Philpott. Dr. Philpott, welcome, thanks for coming in. Uh, when you were Health Minister, you were in kind of a similar position with the provinces. You were hearing the same requests for increased health transfers. Is there a way to get through this impasse now and finally agree to a solution for long-term funding? There has to be a way to get through. Uh, this is an incredibly important conversation for the entire country. And as you said, it's similar to the situation we were in, uh, well, more than five years ago now when we were negotiating the last time, uh, except that it's different because we've spent the last three years in this extremely uh, challenging health crisis. Mm -hmm. The health workforce is... Uh, is exhausted and uh, the backups and backlogs all over the country are so great that there is almost nothing that's more important right now for us as a country to be able to get back on our feet economically and socially than to get health care right. And so it's an incredibly important conversation and everybody's going to have to show up at that table ready to get work done. Yeah. Bob, this is kind of like an evergreen story in Canadian politics. I know you've covered it many yeah. times, this, this, this constant battle between the premiers yeah. and the prime minister over funding. Um, who stands to gain and lose from this debate? Because Canadians get very frustrated by it, but do they blame anyone in particular? Well, the Canadian public is the one that is losing. Right. The, the system is on the very edge of collapse. Yeah. And we are having Ottawa and the provinces playing that same old game yeah. of tit for tat, fighting over money. 
uh, you know, there are solutions to fix this healthcare crisis. The medical uh, uh, healthcare professionals, uh, doctors and nurses have put them on the table. Right. Ottawa needs to sit down with the provinces and say, okay, if we give you this money, Tell me and commit that you are going to bring in these changes. Right. We're not going to shovel a bunch of money the to you. The provinces oh, no, they, want, they want the money, we, and we've seen this happen before. We give them money, they take it, and they cut people's taxes, or they spend it on highways. Right. We need money into our health care system, right. but not just throwing money into it. We need money going into solutions. Right. Uh, Staff, the pandemic uh, really revealed some of the strains that the health care system is under, and now we're seeing these waves of respiratory illnesses affecting children's hospital, people reacting uh, very strongly to that. Uh, is that emboldening, do you believe, people who would like to see a bigger role for the private sector in Canada's single-payer system? Is, 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 is privatization a solution that is anyone is considering seriously? I think innovation is a solution that people are considering, right? I mean, you definitely saw during the pandemic, for example, a move to virtual care, a way for people to be able to access health services. That's something also that's very popular, let's say, in rural communities, telemedicine. There are virtual solutions, perhaps, to this problem. But, you know, the broader issue, right, is who is willing to have that conversation? Who is willing to be the politician that steps on that third rail of the Canadian political <laughs> debate yes. and says, okay, I'm the one. I'm the one who's going to step up and say, this is not working anymore. And if Canadians continue to delude themselves about our healthcare system being the best in the world because nobody right. has to pay for anything, right. we see the consequences of that, yeah. right? But getting the premiers and the prime minister in a room together, that's one thing. Maybe what they need to do is also bring in doctors, nurses, right. patients, bring them into the room. Start listening to those voices, mm -hmm. put aside your jurisdictional nonsense, and, you know, figure out an answer. Yeah, you're right. Do a first minister's conference that includes the healthcare professionals so that it puts them, the, the Prime Minister and the prop premiers on the line because they do have solutions. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Philbot, Philpott, in, in 2016, you came to the table with an offer to boost funding by $11.5 billion over 10 years, but funds were earmarked for home care, for mental health, and the premiers didn't like that. They didn't like putting strings on it. Uh, and then you ended up making deals with individually with specific provinces. Do you think the current government's going to have to take that route? They're going to have to uh, put these agreements in place one uh, province at a time, kind of piecemeal? I suspect that it will happen one province at a time. Whether that has to actually be considered piecemeal or not is, a, is another question. Um, I think that the days of no strings attached are over. And, uh, you know, I actually think both the feds and the province are entering this with some good ideas and both of them with some uh, some rigidity that's absolutely going to have to change. So, yes, the feds are going to have to bring more money to the table. Yes, the provinces are going to have to say, we'll take some strings attached. We've got to be able to find some common ground on areas like access to primary care, which is a disaster across the entire country. So let's all agree that that can be fixed. I love uh, Steph's suggestion that you know nurses doctors other health professionals need to come to the table the patient voice needs to be there and let's actually say we need to invest more we need to invest better there are solutions and uh, we can no longer accept the status quo in healthcare. Yeah. Uh, Bob throughout the pandemic the prime minister met virtually I think almost every week with the premiers collectively now there's this demand that he meet with them to talk about long-term health care funding and he has been so far reticent to do that. Why? Uh, well, I think he's worried about getting entrapped in these uh, formal uh, First Minister's type meetings where they don't tend to be overly successful and it's we want money, you want money. But what mm -hmm. I'm surprised he's not doing, Glenn, is 
he does have a very good relationship with most of these premiers, as you pointed out. Like from the Premier Ford, he gets along very well but with, yeah. Why he isn't yeah. picking up the phone and having individual conversations with the premiers to try to figure out uh, a way to, through this impasse? Because the longer we delay, the more difficulty we're seeing with lineups at hospitals, all the problems with the pediatric care. I can't, when my doctor died, I can't get a doctor. I mean, right, yeah. this is a serious issue for yeah. uh, Canadians all across the country. Uh, Steph, Jugmeet Singh has uh, raised this as a possible reason to cancel his uh, confidence and supply agreement with the federal government uh, if, if it, the government doesn't move quickly enough to, to get more funding to, to the, into the healthcare systems. Is that bluster, uh, bravado, or is this something could actually trigger an election? You know, the supply and confidence deal when it comes to health care, by and large, is worded very vaguely, right? right I yeah. mean, there are some specific commitments about pharmacare, a, a timeline on that, a dental care, timeline on that. But as the health care system writ large, very vague. So let's look to Jagmeet Singh and say, OK, what does he consider a win? What will he accept as, you know, making good on the agreement? He set forth, you know, he wants to see more compensation for doctors and nurses and things that aren't necessarily in the federal wheelhouse. Right. I think there's wiggle room there. I think there's definitely a way to put pressure on the Liberals. Um, but whether, you know, Canadians are going to go to the polls over health care, given the fact that, it, again, it's a provincial issue as right. well. Right. It, triggering a federal election on something yeah, you need the provincial buy-in on, it's a bit challenging politically. Great, thanks. Uh, Dr. Jane Philpott, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, challenging China. Now that Canada has released its Indo-Pacific strategy, what comes next in Canada-China relations? Former Canadian ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, is here next. Stay right here with Question Period. Rethinking ties to China, Canada's relationship with the superpower has been increasingly strained in recent years. Just over a month ago, Canada released its long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy, which describes China as an increasingly disruptive global power, and details out how the Fed's plan to protect Canadian market access in China while diversifying beyond it. We'll never have to apologize for defending our national interests and without compromising our values. This is the central tenet of the Indo-Pacific strategy. And now, when it comes to China, we have a clear framework uh, when it comes to dealing with the government of China. The strategy also lays out plans to push back against foreign interference in Canada. This as allegations of Chinese meddling in Canada heated up in recent months, leading to opposition parties grilling the Trudeau government on whether China had tried to influence the last two federal elections. So what comes next in this contentious relationship? Former Canadian Ambassador Guy Saint-Jacques joins us now. Mr. Saint-Jacques, uh, thanks for joining us. Before the Meng Wanzhou arrest, relations with China were in what seemed like a much better place. There was talk about starting free trade negotiations, and the Prime Minister and President Xi Jinping had agreed to annual bilateral meetings. Why did the relationship sour so quickly? Well, I, I would say that, in fact, the relationship at the, started to, uh, to go downhill because you will recall that Mr. Trudeau uh, went to Beijing in December 2017, supposedly to launch officially the free trade negotiations, but uh, the Chinese didn't agree to the wording of the press communique, and so uh, it was a, a missed opportunity. But uh, after that, I would say, uh, you know, the, uh, the arrest of Meng Wanzhou and the subsequent arrest of the two Michaels really changed uh, the, the views of the Canadian public and the government on 
what was really happening in China. And I think many people discover the aggressive side uh, of China, uh, a China that does not hesitate to act as a bully uh, to punish you if you do something that uh, you don't like. And I think uh, it was just a question of, of time uh, before we arrived to, to that point, because the, uh, <clears throat> there had been many uh, yellow lights uh, flashing uh, in Beijing, and I think the government should have been alert to those uh, much earlier. Yeah. Steph, I remember going on that trip that uh, Mr. Saint-Jacques uh, mentioned, and I believe it was uh, Christian Freeland, who was then the international trade minister, brought a jar full of canola because that was kind of a big sticking point in the relationship with whether China would accept uh, our canola. So there's a, there's a big economic component to this, and there are consequences to us in, in terms of our ability to export a lot of agricultural products uh, into China. Now talk to me about th how that could be adversely affected by this diplomatic row we have going on continuously. So, you know, and the, we've seen, of course, China play an element of hostage diplomacy, right? right. Where, the, where that's sort of how they've begun to act on the world stage. But they've been doing that from an economic standpoint for, for quite some time, right? right? Deciding on a whim, perhaps, that they're going to cut off their imports of product X or product Y. Um, sometimes, you know, putting forward scientific evidence, sometimes dancing around that. And so I think that the, it's a problem that has bedeviled governments even before the Trudeau Liberals, where they right. all take the message, we're going to be tough on China, we're going to stand up for human rights, but, 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 we need that market, right. right? Can you, I mean, to borrow an expression, walk and chew gum at the same time on this file, it's becoming increasingly notable that perhaps, no, you can't. And that leaves the Trudeau government trying to find new markets. The problem right. becomes what market can take as much canola yeah, are they big as enough? China yeah, used right. to be able to take. It's not Cambodia it's, right, or, right, or Thailand. Exactly right. that. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. That. It, uh, it, you know, we it, had it blinders is. on. This government had blinders on. Uh, right from the get-go, right. uh, they were allowing Canadian companies, high technology, military technology, going to China, no national security reviews. Yeah. Uh, they were the hostage of the Canada-China Business Council. Whatever they wanted to do, that right. was fine with them. The Canadian public was way ahead of this government. They recognized long before the Meng Wanzhou uh, and the yeah. rest of the two Michaels that China was something we had to really consider this reconsider this relationship and after the arrest of the, the two Michaels yeah. uh, the government was still very slow in doing anything about it, it took the United States and Australia yeah. and other allies to, who said we are going to do something about China you better join us and so we're now playing catch-up with our allies yeah you, you and Steve Chase have been writing about this extensively at the globe for, for a couple of years do you think it's kind of catching on and, and is there the conventional thinking is foreign relations don't generally affect people's voting preference. Is, 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 is this different this time? Do you think people are more concerned about this? You know, foreign affairs, you're, you're right, they do not normally affect uh, uh, relations. So uh, I think, um, but the, I think the public does make a decision on this, but it doesn't, it doesn't trump like pocketbook issues, sure, right? Right, right, yeah, fair enough. Uh, uh, Mr. Saint-Jacques, uh, President Xi is probably the most authoritarian leader China has seen since Mao. Uh, how much of China's belligerence, including that towards Canada that we're seeing right now, do you think can be attributed to him personally? Well, I think uh, it's true that he is, uh, uh, he can be uh, closely associated with this attitude because he is the one, uh, once he came to power, who ordered the uh, Chinese diplomats uh, to be a lot more aggressive, to push back on any uh, criticism of China. He is on a mission and he wants to, he is talking about this uh, China dream, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese state. Uh, he is a, a person who is uh, vindicative, revengeful, 
And I think all this shows that China is in an immature power and insecure. And in fact, if you watch what he said at the 20th Party Congress in October, he doesn't want to change the way he is going forward. But he was forced to make a huge change in his attitude towards the COVID pandemic. And in fact, this will have a huge impact on China as the number of cases keep increasing. And this will continue to have a big impact on the economy and the Chinese economy is not doing well. Right. In fact, it's something that uh, she has to watch because it could come back to haunt him. Right. Uh, really quickly, Steph, I want to ask you about um, these allegations of election interference. Uh, we've had denials from Elections Canada. The Prime Minister claims uh, he wasn't briefed on this claim that there have been uh, m money funneled towards 11 can uh, uh, campaigns in 2019. Um, do you think Canadians can still have faith that our elections are going to be conducted fairly? Canadians are the ones who cast the ballot at the end of the day. So the question becomes th their homework, their due diligence, their trust in the system. Do they believe in the vote? There's a, a, you know, a line that the government uses a lot about how the outcome of the election wasn't affected. And so right. as though that's supposed to give Canadians some sort of relief, well, whatever happened, it didn't matter because the vote itself was secure. But, but, but moving forward, though, we, exactly. could, we could have another election in who knows? Yeah. Maybe this and year. And so what are, what are those safeguards, right? right? What are the things that the government thinks it needs to put in place based on you know, the experience or even the whisper campaigns of this experience? right in order to make sure that people have faith in the democratic system because if they can't trust their vote will they vote right Bob do you buy that denial from the government that they don't uh, know about this no I don't um, look I, I I the government I think is right to say that there's no evidence that there was uh, Chinese Chinese state money going because they don't have that evidence but there was uh, election interference and anybody who talks to anybody in these large uh, uh, Chinese Canadian communities will say that there's WeChat going on. They are trying to influence right. the election campaign. Uh, the government is slow to trying to deal with this, but our agencies are now, you know, they're briefing members of parliament what to watch for. I think, frankly, Glenn, the more can, the more can be transparent, the more the government can be transparent, the better our democracy will be and the better we'll be able to judge candidates and whether there may be influence operations. Story we're going to be watching, uh, I think, a lot this year. Uh, Guy Saint-Jacques, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, has the federal government made meaningful progress on Canada's relationship with Indigenous people this year? What are the priorities for 2023? Maiden National Council President Cassidy Caron joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. After 2021 saw many Canadians learn about the tragedy of unmarked graves at residential schools, 2022 witnessed some steps towards reconciliation. Last summer, Pope Francis visited Canada to formally apologize on Canadian soil about the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. But some Indigenous leaders said the apology didn't go far enough. The federal government also named a special interlocutor for unmarked graves back in June. Kimberly Murray has a mandate to make recommendations for a federal legal framework on how to treat and protect burial sites at former residential schools. Meanwhile, in the fall, a human rights tribunal rejected Ottawa's $20 billion offer to settle a lawsuit over underfunding of the child welfare system. And now, both the federal government and the Assembly of First Nations are seeking a judicial review. So, is the progress on reconciliation really being made? And what more can be done 
to advance reconciliation. Joining us now is Métis National Council President Cassidy Caron. Uh, Ms. Caron, uh, thank you for coming in. Uh, you went to Rome last year for uh, the, that visit with the Pope, um, and, and then, he, of course, he came back to Canada uh, to apologize. What did that mean to you, and, and was it merely symbolic, or was it more than that? So it meant many different things to many different people. For some Métis residential school survivors, they needed the acknowledgement coming from the Catholic Church, from Pope Francis himself, that these harms did occur to them. And the apology that was delivered by Pope Francis was, was truly meaningful for some survivors. For others, it didn't go far enough. And we're now in a stage of identifying what next, what are the next steps, how do we continue to work with the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Vatican itself, to really continue the conversation and continue making progress for reconciliation. Part of the progress, uh, Bob, is the federal government turning over records that are going to help people get closure on this, but they have been resistant to that. Why is that? Well, I don't know why, but they should be ashamed. Anybody who has uh, spoken to residential school survivors, these are deeply wounding. And I've, uh, when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out a number of years ago, they had these healing sessions where they were right. speaking about what had happened to them. Right. And many of them, it was the first time in their lives that they'd actually publicly talked about it. And, and they need that closure. They need those records. There is absolutely no excuse. I think they're, they're hostage to the Justice Department for some reason because they're always worried about litigation. This is not a litigation issue. This is what these people deserve to get and to be able to close, bring closure to their yeah. lives. Steph, there's more litigation over this $40 billion settlement for uh, people adversely affected by the child welfare system, the underfunding in that system. How important is it for the government to get this behind them? It's important because it marks another part of the reconciliation process, right? We talk a lot about acknowledging past harms and then trying to figure out a way to justify them. In this case, there is almost you could say there's a decision on the table that says this is how we will acknowledge it. So it's they have a template, they have a way, a path forward. Right. Won't solve, you know, again, everybody experiences things differently. For some, the money will be meaningful. For others, it will never be enough. But either way, to solve this problem, I think also in, in light of the national consensus that failing children in this country is the most grievous thing you right. can do. Right. And if we can't get our children on a path to success, it only sets up the entire of society for failure down the road. Yeah, uh, Justin Trudeau came to power in 2015, making reconciliation his top priority. Uh, he does a lot symbolically. You no, know, mm -hmm. he talks about it often. Uh, but is he is he is he walking the talk? Uh, and, and is there a sense among the indigenous community that he is fulfilling that commitment, or is he falling short? It's, uh, it's hard to measure. I would say, undoubtedly, we have, as the Métis Nation, made significant progress working alongside Trudeau's uh, government. Uh, but there's still so much work to be done. Reconciliation is a journey. There's no beginning or end to it. Uh, indigenous people across this country continue to face systemic injustices in the child welfare system, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. That's right. a crisis that we have not seen any government yeah. at any level act seriously on and uh, you know we need the Trudeau government to step up in but, that but, space. But are, but are people who were initially buoyed by his commitment are they do you think they're starting to lose faith in him? 
I, I'm not sure that we'd be losing faith as of yet. There's still much to be done. Yeah. I'd say really the areas where we do continue to struggle is, is where there are the jurisdictional boundaries. Mm. Uh, even with the, the residential school records, you know, the records that we don't fully have access to, sometimes they are within the jurisdiction of the province. That's what we see with Métis residential schools. Sometimes yeah. it is within the federal system. And so, you know, that uh, bounce between federal and provincial jurisdictions is, is really actually kind of holding records reconciliation back. Right. You know, I mean, how long can we, uh, exp we can't pat ourselves on the back until we, we don't have people living in third world conditions on right. reserves. Right. We, we are, jails are, both female and male jails are full of indigenous people. They have the highest suicide rates. The best example is just, there are murdered women believed to be in a dump in Winnipeg. Yeah. If, mm -hmm. it, uh, if those were white women, mm -hmm. there wouldn't even be a question. And that's the struggle that we as a society, we have to deal with this. Steph, do you get the sense that, that Canadians are more responsive to this than they have been in the past? I mean, the, the, this, the story about the unmarked graves really got a lot of attention and, and it really, I think, woke people up to what was happening. But Indigenous issues have never been kind of a ballot box issue for, for many people. Is that, is that changing? Is there, are there political consequences here for, for not just the federal government, but, but provincial governments not acting? I'll go back to the question of children, right? I think that the, the, the discovery of unmarked graves touched off a sort of a flame for a lot of people. I mean, I see it in my own kids and in their friends, right? right. Hearing that story, realizing that what? What happened? Like, tell me more. Yeah. I need to learn more, mom. How can we talk about it more? So then the conversation comes into the family. Then the conversation, you know, for adults becomes, well, are we doing enough as a society? So I do think there's room. I think that there's, these things take time to percolate right. into politics, you right. know, and, and, you know, for people to say, okay, this is my ballot box issue, number one. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't be, but it becomes a, of a piece. Right. Are we doing enough to protect the most vulnerable in our society? And are we doing enough to specially protect and encourage and develop people that we, the government, the system has made vulnerable. Right. Um, and I, I do think that that as a whole of an issue becomes a political issue and a political liability. Yeah. Ms. Carroll, what are you looking for in this coming year on, on this front? Uh, you know, the changes that need to be made uh, are deeply systemic. And one of the most important things that I think the federal government can do is uh, remain true to its commitment on fully implementing UNDRIP, the United Nations right. Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Uh, the action plan for how to do so is supposed to be fully developed by June of 2023. It's been a long process. It's been a long process and uh, it's time to get to work to harmonize our laws with with the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People and create the systemic justices or this the systemic changes that will create ultimate change for for our future. Cassidy Carroll, thank you for coming in. Bob and Steph will be back for our next segment. When we come back, predicting the political plays of 2023. What are the big stories coming down the pike in the new year? What are we watching for? Pollster Nick Nanos will join us. Stay right here with Question Period. On the political radar, the new year has just begun, but there is already speculation about what's to come. The Liberal and NDP supply and confidence deal has changed the dynamics on Parliament Hill. It's intended to keep Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in power until 2025. But NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been threatening to pull support if there's no progress on certain policy priorities, like the health care crisis. Trudeau also has the power to call an election at any time. 
Meanwhile, there are other major issues on the federal government's agenda to look ahead to, from contentious gun control legislation to ambitious climate change targets and constitutional threats from certain provinces. So, what are the big political stories to watch for in 2023? Pollster Nick Nanos joins us. Nick, thank you for coming in. I know you're always watching closely the horse race number as we head into the new year now. Is there any major party poised to gain a big advantage this year? Well, in the now's tracking, the Conservatives have about a three to four point advantage on it on any given day. The, the party to watch, period, full stop, are the new Democrats. They will make and break both the Liberals and the Conservatives. If the new Democrats have a number in the 20s, that's mm -hmm. bad news for Justin Trudeau under any circumstance and very good news for Pierre Poiliev. But if they're below 20, that means that the progressive forces are still rallying behind the Liberals and the Liberals have a shot to hold on to power. The New Democrats didn't do that well in the by-election in December. No, exactly. Not that those are necessarily indicative, yeah, but they, yeah. They didn't do well. They're down five points. Liberals up point up six points, which right. means that those progressive voters look like they shifted over to the Liberals. Yeah. Uh, Steph, uh, we've seen three consecutive Conservative leaders who have polled high uh, and then only to fade during election campaign and, and lose to Trudeau's Liberals. Is Pierre Polyev in a different position than, than his predecessors? He's in a different position for now because he has caucus largely behind him. In a way, he had a decisive victory yeah. that means the team is on side with Pierre Polyev. They're listening, you know, singing from the same song sheet as him quite literally in some instances. Right. How long that goodwill lasts though, Glenn, like that's one of the storylines to watch with Pierre Polyev. As we were getting to the end of the year last year, there started to be some grumbling. He's spending too much time in question, he's spending too much time in question period. Mm -hmm. He's not out on the hustings. How come we didn't fight at all mm -hmm. in the Mississauga Lakeshore by-election? Right. And so what does he do to keep the team motivated, especially if if some of the storylines that he's really strong on, ethics, the economy, how long can you keep doing that? Do you need to find some other cause to get people focused on going and he's, ahead? he's got to keep that base that helped him one so decisively in the leadership uh, race uh, appeased as well. Yeah, I mean, they have a policy convention coming up next year. That'll yeah. definitely be a storyline to watch for the Conservatives to see the extent to which the base remains mobilized and tries to push him yeah. in a policy direction that maybe he's not comfortable going. Uh, Bob, on Justin Trudeau, uh, really hard to win four consecutive mandates in Canadian politics. Not many people uh, have done it. There was speculation last year that he was maybe not going to run again. He quashed that pretty decisively, I think. What is his rationale, motivation to run again? Well, well first of all, our Prime Minister has to quash it. He yeah. can't run a government if his key ministers are right. running around trying to organize in which, by the way, they are doing. Uh, <laughs> this year, 2023, is the year that uh, Justin Trudeau has got to make a decision whether he's going to stay. It'll be later in the year for sure. Um, so you th you're not buying his... No, I'm not. His, this, I'm you, not think, you think it's still up in the air? I think it's a serious, still a serious issue. Yeah. And, and he... He needs to do it this, later this year because he needs to give a year's time for whoever replaces him if he decides to leave. But as you said, nobody, the time frame for government uh, prime ministers is, is nine years at the most. Right, right. And you can go right back to San Laurent, nine years, nine years. This guy is hitting it. And people are tired of him. And he's not polling great as, uh, yep. as a personally. So I think he's got to make a real decision. Is it a, it, does he want to run again after only winning two minorities mm -hmm. and potentially losing to somebody like uh, Pierre Polyev? Or does he want to leave out? And as the guy who brought the Liberals back to power, he's right. got some good accomplishments. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the better way to go? We'll see. I mean, people around him, of course, they all 
tell him that he's wonderful and he's the can't party can't survive without you but you know what they can yeah nick i know you also track issues that are top of mind for canadians right now healthcare is always one of them of course uh what's different this year as we head into 2023 well you know one thing for the last couple years it's all been about the pandemic you know in the the close end of 2022 and i think in the beginning of 2023 it's going to be about meat and potatoes issues inflation right the cost of goods economy and jobs but healthcare has been on the rise in the last couple of months because Canadians are worried you know emergency rooms aren't open it's hard to access a doctor mm. the key thing here is that if 2023 is about healthcare that is going to favor both the liberals and the new democrats because you know what the conservatives are never strong on right. healthcare Canadians just it doesn't but if the focus is on a recession meat and potatoes rising interest rates people paying the rent that could potentially be a big advantage for Pierre Poilievre because his numbers have always gone up when he's focused on those meat and potatoes issues. Yeah. Uh, Bob, and on issues, I mean, this time last year, we weren't talking about uh, inflation. Of course, we weren't talking about uh, Ukraine uh, very much. Uh, or interest rates was on, on the radar and the Freedom Convoy nobody had heard of. Mm-hmm. Is there a sleeper issue you think is coming this year that could be something that moves the dial? Well, I can't think of a sleeper issue um, because I still think the economy is the key thing for everybody. Um, if inflation, well, interest rates are, are going up and they may go up even more in, right. in 2023. And uh, if the American economy slows down and there are signs of that, this is going to be a real serious trouble for this government because yeah. you cannot win an election yeah. coming out of a recession. Yeah. Nobody has done that. Yeah. Yeah. Steph, what are you watching for this year? Uh, I'm watching for the Liberal legislative agenda. One of the things that struck me, and again, in the waning months of 2022, is the Liberals are beginning to take things that they could do by regulation and put them into legislation. Right. To me, that's a symbol of a government that thinks it might be on the way out, and it's trying to protect a legacy. Child like, care would like, be a really like good example of that. Like those semi-automatic rifles they're adding to exactly the, that. So guns yeah. is a really good example of yeah. that, Glenn, because they've been explicit that that's yeah. what they're trying to do, right? right? They're trying to get it into a yeah. law so that it needs a majority government to undo it. So they're taking some of the things they want to be their signature pieces. Um, But the gun control debate is definitely one to watch in 2023 because what a disaster. I mean, can you come up with a piece of legislation that is more reviled by every single side of this issue, including liberals themselves who think this is a bad idea? All they had to do was toss some of the rural members in their caucus. They could have said, yeah, no, those are legitimate hunting guns. Don't do that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and that's all they had to do and they screwed it up. So how they're gonna fix it, I I don't know. That's gonna take a lot of uh, magic wandery and scrambling public servants <laughs> magic to rewrite. Magic wandery, I like yeah. that word. Okay, all right, we have to leave it there. Nick, thanks for coming in, appreciate it. And thanks to Bob Fife and Stephanie Levitz for spending the morning with us. That's Question Period for this week. Next Sunday, Vashi Capellos will begin her role as host of CTV's Question Period. Thanks for tuning in on this New Year's Day and enjoy the rest of your holiday season.